This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Real Talkers, we're grateful to have you here with us on this Friday, the 3rd of March. Jesperson and Hicks coming up. Uh, in just a second, we're going to check in with uh, Sarah Larniuk. She's a, a freelancer uh, based out of London, England. She's just left Ukraine. She's been reporting there, doing remarkable work from the front lines uh, over the past year. So obviously, uh, the, that one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine just passing, and we've been looking at it from a number of different angles. She's been doing storytelling uh, in, in an intimate context, one-on-one, meeting uh, the people of Ukraine, the personalities by name, by face, the ones that are sticking around the ones that are risking the lives the ones that are fighting uh, for their sovereignty for their independence for self-preservation uh, Sarah's going to join us uh, in just a second coming up in about 25 minutes from now our real talk roundtable presented by urban timber it's a big week in Alberta politics and we're going to take a look back uh, with Dave Cornway a blogger from Dave Berta with Jason Markusoff from CBC and with Roberta Lexier from the Alberta Advantage podcast. Looking forward to what I think is going to be a candid half hour or so talking about the budget, what it tells us about the upcoming election campaign, and maybe some of the storylines that you haven't been hearing covered in some of the mainstream newscasts. What are the, what are, what are the interesting points that are flying under the radar? Those are always ones that we're interested in. Of course, trash talk is locked and loaded, and I'm not surprised to see uh, some commentary here from uh, the Fort Chipwan area. You probably have seen, if you're watching the the national news, uh, a huge scandal. It's being described as environmental racism, leaks from tailings ponds, polluting the waters and the lands of some of the First Nations in that area. Of course, an area rich with resource revenue, but it sounds like a cover-up. And we've got Rod chiming in for trash talk on that. We've also got Wade, who just absolutely calls me to the carpet. <laughs> and I'm I'm looking forward to reading Wade's email as well. He signs off with utmost respect, but he uses his flamethrower to write the email itself. So it's going to be wildly entertaining. You won't want to miss it. As mentioned, Sarah Lorniak is a Canadian freelance producer and reporter based out of London in the UK, working frequently all across Ukraine. She's just left Ukraine. Uh, arriving back in London within the last 24, 36 hours or so. Prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Sarah's main beat was reporting on climate change, coverage for which she's been listed now as a finalist for an award from the Canadian Association of Journalists. She joins us live from London. Sarah, thank you so much for making time for us, and it's nice to see you. How are you settling back into London? Obviously, a, a completely different reality from which you've become accustomed. Yeah, completely different. Uh, Ryan, thanks for having me. <laughs> this is, uh, um, I mean, we'll get into some of the storytelling that you've done. I want to get into some of the people that you've met and obviously the impact that it has on you as a storyteller. But but as mentioned, you've you've made a name for yourself uh, doing a lot of work on the climate beat. Um, how did this, do I call it an opportunity? I mean, how did you wind up in Ukraine covering the war literally from the front lines? Um, How did I end up here? Boy, that's this story and a half um i guess my first experience in ukraine came in 2019 i'd always wanted to tell stories um of conflict principally because yes it's war brings out the worst in people that is without a doubt true Uh, but it also in my experience brings out the best things that human beings have to offer and i'm really drawn to telling stories about that resilience about that ability to overcome 
And so in 2019, I went when the war was at a much smaller scale and had a chance to familiarize myself with the country a bit. And so my intent had originally been to continue reporting from there. A couple of personal things got in the way and the pandemic. Um, and then when the invasion happened in uh, February last year, I just knew it was where I had to be. I knew that exact moment wasn't the time to go just because every news agency in the world was on the ground. Um, but as soon as I could after that, I, I took my vacation time from my job at Canada Land where I was producing the podcast there and I I hit the ground. Yeah. So you you arrive there and what's the I mean, obviously, it's it's going to be a uh, something completely different than what you're used to. It would be something that would blow most people's minds. Uh, you've got this nation that that is uh, standing steadfast. Let's, we talk about the one year anniversary of Russia's invasion. It's, it's also right around the nine year anniversary of the Russian invasion, the annexation of the, of the Crimean Peninsula. What vibe did you get? Uh, from the moment you arrived, what were some of the first things you noticed about, about maybe the resolve of the people or what you were seeing around you? Yeah, I remember uh, the first few days, I mean, I eased my way into the country the first time I went in after the invasion. And I started in Lviv, that western Ukrainian city. And I was really um, moved by the first, one of the first things I saw was street performers. And they were really latching on to these like, uh ukrainian pride songs and so in the street in lviv only it was still less than three months after the invasion um street performers were performing these you know kind of morale boosting songs and i remember just wanting to cry because i wondered whether it would be possible to even enter the country uh, um again in those days right after the invasion and so to to see that level of resilience from the people to see like a hundred people swarming around these uh these musicians and then i mean the video you're showing now again i've witnessed that again and again um this one's from just last month um mm. people dancing in the streets it, it's a resilience that i i really struggle to put words to of course that's my job but it, it's very difficult to explain just how determine the ukrainian people are to to keep living yeah there's like you you, you talk about resilience there's there's also like a defiance isn't there too there's a, mm-hmm. a, a, a and you notice that from i i think from from the leadership the top political leadership all the way down yeah. when you were talking to people on the street uh, i mean i'm always curious to to pick a storyteller's brain to understand your method or your process would you would you make your way around a town square would you h- how are you how are you unearthing these stories and you know these these people who who you ended up representing to, to the rest of the world to yeah. a global audience uh not so much I, I don't so much go around like on the street um but a person always knows someone who's doing something else in this war it's actually ends up being like a very small world once you get there on the train out of the country i ended up knowing three people in the single train car that i was on so it it ends up being a a a small network of people that all know each other and so once you meet one person doing something they know someone else doing something and and those are the people that really kept me coming back um because like you said resilience defiance those are kind of the two words like the Thesaurus needs to come up with more terms hmm. uh, for those words because they seem to be the two words I use the most in my reporting. Um, but when you talk to the people that I've had a chance to meet, um, I think a lot of uh, of people hear about that sense of humor that Ukrainians have. Um, we've seen the memes and different things like that that have, have come out of this war. 
and the resilience that, that push to keep going. I want to be clear that it is masking a lot of trauma. Like, I think we're willing to accept that like, Oh, okay. They're, they're laughing. They're joking. They're moving on. It's as soon as you start having a deeper conversation with someone, you realize that it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, Like I spoke to a street artist in the Eastern city of Kharkiv and he was showing me one of these paintings he did on a wall um, because during the bombing of that city, he was determined to give people hope. So he started doing street art. One of the paintings he did was of a seesaw and there's two texts on the wall. One of them says something along the lines of war takes. Yeah, that's it. That's him. Uh, war takes uh, so much time and opportunity. On the other side, it says war gives so much time and opportunity. He talks about all the people he's personally lost, who he knows, people who he's become very close to in trying to preserve their country, and then they die. Um, he also talks about the fact that this war has given him purpose in a way he never could have possibly understood prior. Um, but it has come at such a cost. He doesn't recognize his life. He actually doesn't know what he would do after the war, because now that he's found this purpose, now that he's found out what his time is capable of, how do you move on if peace was to be declared, declared tomorrow? Um, medics have been people I've spent a lot of time with and those are people who've largely had to they're funny they'll make jokes about whatever it is uh that's going on around them largely you know artillery shelling and uh people dying um they they find a way to create a dark humor around them but like they've lost their ability to access their own emotions um one medic i've followed through the year and he when i talked to him in may talked about how the cost of this war has been that the people helping the most have uh, had to give up part of their souls. When I asked him about that this month, he uh, said he wasn't sure he had a soul and Mm -hmm. he said it with a laugh, but I don't think it was a joke. Um, It's just, and for all of the unbiased, um, nature of the work that we try to do as journalists. Like it, it's impossible to be unbiased in this story for a multitude of reasons. First of all, because my family um, is Ukrainian. Mm. I was born in Canada, but um, the second reason just being that you do start to care for these people. And how can you not? Yeah, you're a, I hope it's okay with you if we bounce back and forth between, you know, the the stories that you're sure. telling in Ukraine and your experience as a freelancer and as a journalist. I know you're probably not going to want to make any of this about you, but but it, it's no. it's fascinating what you're doing and and it's remarkable what you're doing. And uh and yeah, I, I uh man, we could talk for an hour just just about that whole idea of unbiased storytelling. I I I don't know that I want to go on the record and say that that uh, you know, I I do believe that journalists need to find that integrity, need to have that integrity. The public mm-hmm. needs to have the trust that the journalist is approaching the story with integrity and that sort of idea. But the idea of being unbiased, um, it's impossible mm-hmm. to be unbiased. And a situation like this, I mean, I, I, you know, I, yeah. I want to even be careful when, whether you're talking to a war correspondent like yourself or someone on the front line or whatever, even with the questions you ask. Um, the things that you see, it's impossible for that not to not shape your perspective, for that to not impact your storytelling, for that to not impact your own personal resolve. Yeah. And I would say that the way I've always navigated through that is that it's okay to be 
bias towards human life, like towards the preservation of human beings. I'm okay with that bias. Um, this isn't a equal sided conflict. Um, this was a clear invasion of one sovereign nation. And so I'm okay with the idea of being biased towards not destroying human life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's safe to say. Can I ask you about Ilya? Um, I want to show for those that are watching mm -hmm. on YouTube uh, and, and for those listening on the podcast, you can follow Sarah on Twitter. We link to uh, her handle in our official tweet uh, announcing the, the show's guests. And of course, you can find it in the show notes as well. But Ilya here, a real estate agent uh, before he became a soldier, you say this year changed his life forever. He's grateful because he's here while his fellow soldiers are not hoping one day to represent Ukraine at the Paralympics. Um, I yeah. mean, how many thousands of Ukrainians left office jobs to fight can you tell us about Ilya? yeah it's hundreds of thousands of people so it's i think when you talk about a soldier losing their life or losing their leg in the case of Ilya and having severe burns from he he was working in a tank and his tank went over an anti-tank mine exploded killed everyone else on board except for him amputation of the leg and this happened in october and he's still in the hospital now healing from the infection and, and his face, his arms, his body, he will forever remember this war every time he looks in the mirror. But when we use the word soldier, sometimes we forget that, that in this case, these people weren't soldiers prior to February 24th last year. Um, these weren't people who signed up wanting to defend the country, but they had to. Um, I think we, I, d I don't know how to navigate this, uh, diplomatically, but we tend to have an easier time accepting loss of, of soldiers lives huh. because like, oh, well they signed up for that. Right. It's, it's a next, another, it's another level of complication and, and trauma in this story that they were forced to, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> no, I do know what you mean. And I think even I, I try to. We talk about this a lot on the show and not just in the context of war. We're talking about the context like like natural disaster or or for that matter, things yeah. like unemployment, like it, just with anything. Mm -hmm. As humans, we hear these numbers, you know, like you yeah. know how, how many tens of thousands of lives have been lost in this conflict or how many people were were, were killed when the, the, the boat disintegrated off the shore, you know, of, of migrants off a shore. And you, you oh, 59 people. Yeah. It's like that's 50. I know I'm not saying anything profound. But I don't know There's that we 59 do enough. human beings, not 59 migrants. Yeah. I totally understand what it's you mean. It's why I want to ask you about, thing, like, Ilya, like, this is, wording. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is one person who, who has a name and a life and a, and a past and a present and a future. And it's just, yeah. uh, you know, you so you, uh, you you posted something just a couple of day, a days ago, and it was right after uh, you and I had connected. We were looking to have you on the show earlier in the week, and you're telling us, you're like, I'm in transit. You're like, I'm on my way back from Ukraine to London. I mean, this is all really fresh for you. And you posted a photo, uh, what looks to be from the train station, um, and you muse publicly, I wonder if after the war is over, it will ever get easier to leave this country because as of now, it's heart-wrenching. Can I ask you to get personal for a second? What, as you took that photo, as you as you decided to post that publicly, what's what's going through your mind? And now, maybe forty eight hours later, how how are you processing it? Um, yeah, it's heart wrenching to leave because you know when you leave, it there will be other things that are happening um, that you're missing, the stories you're not telling, and you feel a responsibility to be there telling those stories always. 
um, when I moved to London. I moved to London specifically to be closer to Ukraine, but I also knew, having been in the country, that I couldn't be there all the time. Uh, it's too much. You move way too fast. And for my own mental health, I knew, I knew I needed to be able to remove myself. And so coming back to London is very intentional, but then you feel this guilt of not being there. Why am I so weak? Why do I need to leave? None of these people are able to leave. Uh, so you feel a responsibility to be there to tell their stories, I think is, is what it is. Um, coupled with the fact that Ukraine is probably the most beautiful country. It was always my favorite country in the world. Mm. Um, it's just so beautiful and has so much character. And so it's hard to leave. It was it was hard to leave prior to the invasion. Now it's just another level of, of, of difficult, and and now it's guilt. Um, and I know that there's other journalists there. It's not like it's on me alone. But it's yeah. <laughs> I get it. I mean, you could you could you could. I mean, in all reality, we we look at these these atrocities around the world, and it's like you could dedicate the, the entirety of the remainder of your career uh, to telling the stories of the people impacted by just this. And I don't mean yeah. just this, like it's a small thing, but I mean, I mean, no. gosh, I mean, well, I want to talk about your climate reporting in just a second. You can make the same argument there, right? I mean, you know, I mean, yep. uh, I think that we're just lucky to have journalists like yourselves that are that are committing to it and that are doing the heavy lifting. Can I ask you on the freelance side? So your your, your structure is a little bit different. Your setup's a little bit different because you, you obviously, uh, people can check out, I recommend they check out your Twitter profile. They can link to a bunch of your stuff. You just made a return to Canada land to sit down with them for a while. You're doing reporting there. Um, you, you were featured on The Current, on the CBC. You'd, you've been doing a lot of work. How does How is it different as a freelancer, specifically in the context of, I mean, I, you know, I think of, of, of freelancer, the Canadian storyteller Amanda Lintout many years ago out freelancing, independent storytelling, winds up getting kidnapped, held uh, captive, held hostage in, in Africa for quite some time. I mean, is, is it you don't have necessarily all of the supports over there, I would imagine, including maybe security that, that a journalist with a big outlet might. Uh, does it add to yeah. the complications that you have to navigate? Complications? No. Uh, security? Yeah. Mm. Um, I'm by my, myself in the country. Um, I travel alone. I mostly use the train. That's why there's so many photos of trains in anything I post on social media. Um, I'm saving every penny I can because I'm doing it. Like I front all of the costs for all of my reporting there. Um, and it means that I don't have the ability to hire security personnel that would accompany anyone else going into the country with an outlet. Um, so my security is definitely different. I also don't stand out the same way, however. Um, I'm a single person walking down the street. No one really knows me from anyone, but that I have a tripod in my backpack. Um, however, there is a pro to this. Like the financial and safety risks are, are substantial. It's what keeps a lot of people from doing this. Um, the benefit, though, is that a lot of the opportunities I've had to tell very intimate stories, I wouldn't have had those opportunities uh, if I was coming in with a crew, if I was coming in uh, having to answer to several levels of bosses uh, about my security situation. Um, like the way I met the medic that I featured on The Current last week. Um, I just hitched a ride with someone who's delivering aid and then he brought me to this place and then I stayed there for two days and actually got to develop a relationship with this group of soldiers. I can't imagine someone from any outlet being permitted to do that by uh, their bosses. So it's um, kind of a weird 
hard a situation to be in as a freelancer. Yeah. But, um, I'm just looking so, at your website, uh, sarahlarniak.com. Uh, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes so people can check it out. Am I, am I seeing this correctly? You do not have a Patreon? No. Have you thought about? Have <laughs> no, you, I just, have you have you thought about setting up? This is the new era. This is the new age. Uh, we have one. It helps us do what we're doing. Have you have you thought about establishing that? We would love to sh- send people over to your Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I've just never felt like I don't, especially with this war. I don't feel like I can ask for money. Hmm. Um, I'm I'm making a living at it right now. Um, I think my fear is that as outlet interest wane as this war drags on it will become more and more difficult to continue this business model i have yeah um but for now for me to ask for money when people in that country need need it so much more i i can't do that can i be tacky for a second and just pretend like it's just the two of us talking and not thousands of people are going to hear it but um, (laughs) i I think i mean i'm no i'm just seeing you know, friends of ours, I mean, Rachel Gilmore as an example of, of, of among a, a, a roster of people laid off by Global News yesterday. And that's just the latest round of media yeah. layoffs and and the landscape's changing and, and coverage is thinning out. And uh, and these really important stories uh, in many circumstances are being ignored. And that includes in Canadian communities. I want to ask you about climate reporting before we wrap here. But like, you know, Athabasca sure. 4 Chip 1, for example, these tailings pond spills. I mean, you imagine, like, if these stories aren't being told, if there's not investigative journalists on the ground, if if communities are not being represented, then what happens? And we've found yeah. that there are people, and I mean, you've worked with Canada Lens. You know that. You were a finalist for Best Current Affairs Podcast in Canada at the Digital Publishing Awards just last year. You know it. You're, you're, you're at the top of your game. Um, people are looking to support journalism and storytelling in Canada. So this is just my quick pitch to you. I have nothing to gain, but I would say quit being so bashful about asking people for support for your storytelling. People are going to want to pay for at least flag, <laughs> flag jackets or helmets for you. So next time you're reporting and, I, and I'm not making, uh, I I'm, got not, that already. I'm not, yeah, you got that. I'm not making light of that. Of course. Um, let, let me ask you, no. I mean, we're, ref, we're referencing this story. This is just, just breaking in Alberta. I don't know if you've seen it, um, but you know, Alberta. I, sorry. I got to stop you because it's breaking only because they've finally proven it. I actually exactly. reported this story several years. Okay. I reported this story several years ago. Well, take on us National into Observer, it. And take I us into the first. it. Um, the number of people in that community who died from cancer, the doctor who was then blacklisted because he said, hello, something is happening here. Please, someone do something. I remember talking to the chief of that First Nation, and it was actually probably the biggest learning moment for me as a journalist, because I remember interviewing Chief Adam Adam, Adam, and um, pushing him for an emotional response for like, your community hasn't had a safety, health and safety uh, study done. How does that make you feel? And he let me have it. And rightfully so, because I was trying to get this emotional response from him. And he's like, I don't have emotions to give you. Stop asking. Because he was just so, he was just so desperate for it to happen. And he was tired of being like, yeah, of course I'm upset my people are dying. But what am I supposed to do about it? I've done everything I can and still no one will listen. So that this isn't like in the headlines again. It's like, this is nothing new to that community. <laughs> like uh, For us to pretend that this is 
new we to talked any to of the people uh, there you're 100 we, we <laughs> talked to chief adam uh this was back on april 28th of 2021 if people want to look it up so i mean coming up on a couple of years ago and yeah. and and it's as you're describing your experience and talking to him as well the uh this sounds too like childish but like the, sort of the truth bombs that he drops uh the irrefutable uh, evidence that he, I mean, he, the, the valid perspective that he brings to the table here uh, on this file is unbelievable. The ongoing, I mean, it's as I mentioned in my lead in introducing you, described as environmental racism. Um, you you yeah. would never, you would never see this. I will say this confidently. Uh, you would never see this in a in a in a predominantly white or affluent community anywhere in Canada. Mm-hmm. If there was if there was tails tailing spawns leaks or polluted waters coming from industry over an extended period of time impacting hundreds or thousands of people it just wouldn't happen and if somebody wants to challenge me on that provide me an example of somewhere in canada where we've tolerated it for years because we wouldn't but it's being tolerated here in the richest province in the country yeah yep (laughs) um and i think uh someone asked me um, yesterday online about why we should care about Ukraine. We have so many problems domestically. And I don't uh, I don't have the answer to that. I feel enormously guilty that I've abandoned my principal climate and environmental beat um, because there's so much to be done in Canada on that front. And I hope to very soon be able to return to that beat. Um, because stories like this end up either being ignored or not being told enough, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm. There aren't enough people doing climate reporting either. Uh, the problem is that there's limited resources, as you mentioned, yeah. journalists being laid off. Like everyone has to do the best they can and then live with the guilt of not being able to cover the rest of it. That's the quote right there. Let me ask you this in closing. First of all, congratulations on your nomination for a, a huge award from the Canadian Association of Journalists. That's got to, I would imagine, infuse some wind in your sails and reiterate the importance of what you're doing to be to receive news of that nomination on climate reporting while you're doing war reporting in Ukraine must have been <laughs> a bit of a mind bender. Um, before we thank you for your time, Sarah, we appreciate we know we're getting into the evening hours in London and, and we value your your time and of course your your, your need to recharge and recover from from uh, your recent uh, journey. Um, what's one story on the climate beat that you hmm. wish or you demand that the rest of this country, that the you know the almost forty million people across this country start paying closer attention to? Once you return to the climate beat, what's a story that you're gonna one? you're gonna hit? Oh, I mean, hey, maybe if you want to give us a few, <laughs> I just want to respect your time. I gosh, to actually be asked about one. Um, so the story I, I was nominated for, uh, for the or listed as a finalist for for the CAJs, is about water. It's just about how water is changing, but it's changing across the prairies. And that story tried to pull together an enormous picture of about a million stories that are happening across uh, Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. And we need to pay attention to every one of those stories within that big story because I tried to pull together a bunch of things. One of them, environmental racism, because in Alberta, the water licensing agreements actually leave all First Nations at the butt end of the list. It should, should an extreme drought ever occur, their communities are the last ones that will 
ever get access to water based on the current legal system that exists in Alberta for the time being. Um, these are the kinds of stories that are the, the documentary I told about water systems changing because of climate change in the prairies. It, it, like it's so big, <laughs> you can't even really fathom it. Um, but it also really looked at how municipalities aren't prepared, uh, how they are pushing off the planning because so many of the fixes or adaptations for those issues are are so expensive and it's principally falling on municipal governments and they don't have that money because they don't have the taxation power. Um, it, I just, I really don't know where to start because climate's so big and Canada is so big and it, it changes everything. Um, I've reported from Churchill, Manitoba before, and I did, I did a two section spread for the Winnipeg Free Press when I worked there um, that documented everything from how like, uh, shrews and foxes and bears and seals, how everything is changing. You can't actually narrow it down. There mm. is nothing in Canada that won't change because of climate change. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, people can right now, I mean, once they're done listening to this entire episode <laughs> of Real Talk, obviously, uh, go check out your story. It's Canada Land number 776, Prairie Poop Bots, Floods and Water Shortages. Uh, that's the episode there noted and recognized by the Canadian Association of Journalists, uh, produced, hosted by our guest this morning, uh, Sarah Larnia, a Canadian freelance producer and reporter based out of London, UK, which is where she's joining us from this morning, this afternoon or evening for you. Uh, it's really great to have you on the show. Uh, it would be impossible to respect you anymore. And next time we connect, Thanks. I'm looking forward to directing people to your Patreon. <laughs> we'll see. Okay, Sarah. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks very much. Yeah, you got Bye. it. I saw somebody leave a, a, a note on our live chat that just said, I am so glad that we had this interview. Is, is, isn't that a, a, a perspective check from Sarah and just the the human side, the personal side of, of war reporting? I mean, her, her, her family's history, what brought her there in the first place, her understanding of what Ukrainian culture was all about, the, the recognizing the beauty of that nation pre-war, having all of that impact her storytelling now, powerful stuff these are the conversations we want to have and these these are i mean can i just say as well we talk about how grateful we are for audience support these conversations these long form conversations where i mean we just sat and talked to sarah for more than half an hour you don't get that on a lot of these other platforms and am i pumping our tires a little bit i guess but i'm also just thanking you our audience members for for downloading and subscribing to real talk for for subscribing to us on YouTube, for rating the show on the podcast. I mean, I, I joke around about that stuff, but it's real. <laughs> it really matters to us. It, it, it allows us to grow this show, to grow our footprint, and to make sure more and more people are hearing the stories that need to be heard. And you go a long way in helping us with that. A special shout out to our Patreon supporters. Um, we're finding uh, new and exciting ways to thank you for your contributions, your monthly support of this show. And we'll have more announcements to come in 2023. Boy, did we have a lot of fun at that whiskey tasting just a couple of weeks ago. You can go to ryanjesperson.com and click on connect if you want to learn more about how you can support the show on Patreon. Our Real Talk Roundtable is coming up in just a second, presented by our friends at Urban Timber. We're going to be talking Alberta politics. Of course, this show doesn't happen without sponsors like Athabasca University. It's Canada's open university with accredited online programs world-class ones at that courses that offer you the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your 
lifestyle. It doesn't matter what you're interested in. Sciences, the arts, business, human resources, second languages, you name it. Athabasca University's got a program or a course for you. The best part about it is that you roll it out at your own pace. You need to take a month off, no problem. You don't fall behind. You want to speed fast forward ahead and really hammer out that program. Maybe do a semester in a couple of months. If you can make the time for it, it'll work for you. It'll work for them. Find your perfect fit today by visiting AthabascaU.ca. All this talk about climate. How about the work that Kubi Renewable Energy is doing? Solar energy solutions to power your life. Solar energy, obviously cleaner than fossil fuels. Did you know that more than 80% of Alberta's electricity comes from fossil fuels? We're talking coal and natural gas. Solar energy has life cycle emissions that are 25 times lower than coal electricity. You want to feel good about how you're powering your home or your business? Go to kubienergy.ca today and get a free quote from their team doing more installations than any other company in Alberta and BC. It's Kubi Renewable Energy. Now, once you got those solar panels on your roof, you're going to want to reach out to Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider. They work hand-in-hand with Kubi to make sure that the customers that are seeing more electricity generated in the summer months than they need are getting reimbursed more than the big guys are paying. That's right. Park Power's reimbursement, their buyback rates are higher than you'll find anywhere else. That's just one of the many reasons why we recommend you take your utility business to Park Power. Electricity, natural gas, and internet. The promo code REALTALK23. That's realtalk 23 knocks. 50 bucks per utility off your first bill, up to $150. How nice would that be? Today's a great day to take your utility business over to Park Power. Now, if you're an engineer, all this talk about installations and energy is capturing your attention, but to be honest, you're kind of dragging your ass a little bit because you're on your way to the job that you can't stand anymore. You don't feel appreciated. You don't feel valued. You don't even feel intellectually stimulated. You need to head over to apexautomation.ca. They're hiring Canada's most talented engineers and technicians. They're the best in the game when it comes to automation, when it comes to giving people and companies back their time. You can check out their website to learn more about the projects that they're working on and how you might find a perfect fit. Maybe your best career move, if you're a professional engineer, if you're a technician, or if you're aspiring to a career in that field, we recommend you get in touch with Apex Automation by way of their website. And of course, we mentioned our friends at Urban Timber. They're the ones that present our Real Talk Roundtable every Friday. They're the ones that built our literal Real Talk table. We had a vision and they executed it as only they can do. Their beautiful blend of understanding the stories that are contained in some of these old growth slabs of wood. Some of these have been riding the rails on boxcars. I mean, there's so many stories to be told here. But the contemporary design is where they find that perfect mix. Their boxcar collection in particular is crafted from reclaimed rail car planks. The character comes from the wear and tear of the cargo and freight that's been dragged across those planks. Obviously, they're clean sanded, filled with epoxy, finished with a food safe coating. Each one of the custom tables built by Urban Timber is unique. Never two that are alike. Have the history of this wood continue in your home 
You can check out their website, urbantimber.ca, or go see them in person at their beautiful new West Edmonton showroom, including on Saturdays, open 10 to 4. They'd love to see you at Urban Timber. Huge week in Alberta politics. Uh, I mean, it seems like it's it's always, it's never a boring week anyway, so it's always a significant week in Alberta politics, but this one in particular, a nearly $70 billion budget, a surplus budget put in front of Albertans by Finance Minister Travis Taves. It's a pre-election budget. It's a campaign budget as Premier Danielle Smith will look to earn her first full mandate. Meantime, the official opposition led by former Premier Rachel Notley is eager to take government back. So what do we need to pay attention to in particular? If you're like me, budget coverage kind of makes your eyes gloss over a little bit. A bunch of numbers and spreadsheets and the average person, quite frankly, doesn't pay too close of attention. But there are storylines there that matter. Storylines of significance. What does the budget tell us about the upcoming election campaign? That's the assignment that our three panelists have agreed to take on in answering that question. I'm joined here in studio by blogger and podcaster, uh, he is the man behind Dave Berta. It's Dave Cornwyer making his in-studio debut. It's wonderful, Dave, yeah. to have you here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you got it. We're going to be joined uh, via Zoom by two other political commentators. Roberta Lexier is an associate professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary, studies social movements, social change, and left politics. She's a member of the Alberta Advantage Podcast Collective. Roberta, it's great to have you joining us. And our panel is rounded out by CBC political columnist Jason Markusov. Of course, for many years, you read his work in McLean's. He's now over at CBC. That's a great get for them. Is it fair to call this budget, Dave, a sneak peek of what the election platform is going to look like from the UCP? I mean, essentially is a platform, right? What what really jumped out at you? You know, this, this is what the UCP wants Albertans to, to believe that they'll do as, as, as a government after the next election. It's a, it's a, in, in a lot of ways, it's an it's a attempted reinvention of the UCP, and it's a 180 from what we've seen, uh, you know, in terms of what they've been talking about for the past, the previous three years. I mean, only, uh, was it 2019? I mean, it's like the distant memory in Alberta politics now. People have no memory. The, the McKinnon report came out, and this was Jason Kenney was the premier. Uh, this blue ribbon panel was, uh, was given, was tasked with looking at Alberta's spending, not at, at the revenue. And they said, we're spending too much. Alberta, the Alberta government is spending too much. We need to cut. We need to cut public services. We need to cut uh, wages for public sector workers. Uh, that is like nowhere in this budget. This is a total like, and that was, that was like Travis Taves' <laughs> thing back then and uh, up until recently. And now it's, it's, uh, it's a high spending budget. Um, it's designed to be boring. I mean, you talked about how budgets like they, you know, they're designed to make, make your, make your eyes glaze over this one in particular, it's designed to be uncontroversial. Mm. Roberta, we, we talk about uh, the spending in the budget and, and, and I've had some friends wisecrack that uh, that this budget essentially uh, endeavors to, to to, to lop off the NDP at the knees because all of a sudden the United Conservatives are doing what nobody thought they were going to do, which is spend as much as the NDP might spend or, or spend as much as, for example, the NDP is spending in BC. When you first saw the numbers, when you first saw the budget, what was your first thought which, with regards to what it does to the political dynamic in Alberta right now? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I actually disagree a little bit with what Dave said in that I don't actually see this as a huge departure in some ways. I think, you know, on the face of it, it seems like a huge departure. But I think the general strategy is pretty obvious here that under Kenny, the first few years of this government, they cut, 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 cut. And then now they try and refund a little bit of that. But it doesn't make up at all for the cuts that have been made over the course of the past um, term of government. And I think what we have to really pay attention to is that year-over-year inflation in Alberta is about 5%, and Alberta's year-over-year population growth is about 3%. So anything in this budget that is less than an 8% increase is actually a cut. And so instead of doing brutal austerity measures and demanding these enormous cuts, Danielle Smith's UCP are offering some targeted, modest increases and letting inflation do the work for them of these budget cuts while making themselves look good. And I think the last point I'll make here is just that uh, where they're spending the money is, I think, very important to look at. These are generally aligned with their ideological principles. This isn't just general spending on social programs. This is spending on charter schools, on private health care delivery, on the expansion of oil and gas in that sector. And so, you know, I think it on the surface, it looks like a big spending budget. But I think we have to be a little more critical of it than that. I like that poll quote, inflation, doing the work for them. That, that's a good one. Jason, <laughs> Jason, what in particular? We've had, we've had a few days now to sort of like let, let this settle and to, you know, obviously you're working on your columns and what? What was one thing about this budget or maybe one thing around talk around the budget that surprised you a little bit? Was there something that was unexpected? What strikes me about the budget is that there was that what we're talking about mostly is the spending is the big the big numbers, sixty eight point three billion dollars that this is a pre-election budget. Sure. And they want to give back. They don't want to uh, expose themselves to have the NDP continually saying they've cut, 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 cut. They're doing terrible things. But what they didn't do is they didn't, I don't know if they gave a central image in people's heads about what this budget is for or who this budget is for. Like this is the healthcare budget, or this is the budget that's going to save um, a big amount for Alberta's future. It dropped a lot of things and it tried to do a lot of different things for a lot of different constituencies, like Red Deer's $30 million airport expansion or money for uh, LRT to the airport, the seeds for LRT money, LRT to the airport in Calgary, or one school here, one school there, um, some general sort of average increase in healthcare, but no big single picture. Um, Like, I don't know, with an election in just under three months now, what from this budget people are going to be taking into the ballot box with them and saying this, this from the budget three months ago was amazing or incredible i i, I want to ask all three of you this question dave i'll start with you because mm-hmm. uh, jason i'm glad you mentioned that people say what is the ballot box question or what will the ballot spot ballot box question be you you would say maybe in 2019 it was like a, a referendum on the carbon tax or or if you want to politicize it a referendum on rachel notley's mm-hmm. carbon tax what's this one going to be well i don't think this budget is anyway is, is is anywhere close to where the ballot question is going to be i think it's like I, I, I mean, I, I kind of agree with with what Jason was saying. Like I don't think this really moves anybody in in the next election. If you're going to be voting NDP, I don't think you've. If you're planning on voting NDP, I don't think this changes your mind. If you're voting UCP already, you're planning to vote UCP. I don't think this changes your mind. Even if you were undecided, I'm not even sure if this helps you make a decision about where you're going to vote in the next election. I think you can see where the political parties want to be want the issues to be in the next election. The NDP want healthcare to be. 
the top issue in the next election because they feel that that's and traditionally healthcare is a strong issue for the NDP. So they want they want to be playing to their strong issues and they want Albertans to be walking into the ballot box thinking about thinking about healthcare and thinking about how the NDP can fix the public healthcare system. The UCP has been doing some interesting things. They've been doing a lot of advertising around healthcare. They have these "Help is on the way" yeah. ads you see all over Facebook and all over all over uh, all over the place. Um, you know, so they're doing the, the UCP is doing their best to try to kind of. Uh, neutralize that issue as much as they can. Um, but I don't think people generally really trust the UCP on healthcare. It's it's a bit of a stretch, especially after the past couple of years. Um, the UCP, I mean, you know, traditionally you'd say the economy, the conservatives want to run on the economy. Um, I'm not totally sure that the economy is their strongest issue going into the next election. We saw Danielle Smith talk a lot about, I mean, she stopped talking about COVID and COVID vaccinations and the persecution of COVID, people who refuse to get vaccinated for COVID. So that's not going to be, probably not going to be the UCB's big issue. Um, But, you know, these things about picking fights with Ottawa, these things about, you know, uh, Alberta sovereignty, you know, maybe they're heading in in that direction a bit. Um, But I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's in terms of this budget, I just don't really see a, I don't really see a narrative. I mean, maybe, maybe, Scary NDP, safe UCP is the is the direction the UCP is going, and you huh. can kind of see that with the with the, some of the some of the ads that the the UCP is running. And I I think it's really interesting. I won't t- won't t- take up too much time too much time with this point, but neither of the parties are really running on their records. So the NDP and Ra- Rachel Notley, and this is a very unusual for Alberta, a former premier running again to to become premier again. Like we don't have, that's never happened in Alberta before. Yeah, two people that have held the office going head to head. Yeah, yeah. Usually when a party loses, the party disappears and it goes away and and we never hear from them again. Um, but, uh, you know, Rachel Notley is not really running on her record from 2015 to 2019 because Alberta was in such a poor economic situation back then. And people remember that. Yeah. And, and the voters who Rachel Notley needs this year remember that. And Danielle Smith isn't really running on the UCP record either, you know, because Jason Kenney was so deeply unpopular when he left last year, when he was really kicked out of office last year, that even though it's all the same people, you know, in terms of the cabinet, I mean, it's all the same made people in the major positions, Travis Taves, Adriana LaGrange, Tyler Shandro, Casey Madu, um, they're not really running on a uh, on uh, on their record. They're they're trying to reinvent themselves. You mentioned the education minister Lagrange. Nobody's been talking about the curriculum rewrite lately. I noticed that that's one that's just sort of flying off under the, the radar. radar. It's uh, it's off totally. the radar for now. But Roberta, we if we know a thing or two about how campaigns go, people are going to start talking about that again, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this budget shows that there's a bit of confusion right now in both parties, to be honest. I mean, I think this UCP budget, as both Jason and Dave said, really is trying to kind of make all people happy at all times, I think. It's trying to satisfy the base in the sense of, you know, we're not spending on real health care. We're not spending on real education. We're just doing these little things. Um, and it's really trying to, I think, reassure the rest of Albertans that the UCP isn't going to be this massive austerity government, although I think the reality is, of course, the opposite. But I think the NDP also hasn't really, in this budget process, but also generally, set up the alternative of what their vision is for this. I mean, they're doing a good job, I think, of picking apart pieces of the UCP platform or policies, um, but I don't think we really have any sort of competing visions being laid on the table for us in the lead up to this election. And I think it's being left to vote 
voters to sort of pick and choose what their issue is going to be and who they think is going to be the right um, fit for that. And I think that's really concerning in some ways that I think an election, especially this election, should be about setting out these big alternative visions and letting us choose as voters what we support. You know, it's interesting, Jason, when you when you take a look at and Dave sort of seems hesitant to, to, to hand the United Conservatives the economy file as their bedrock or their pillar. But but if you poll the average person, if you look at at polling, people do associate conservative governments typically or conservative parties as the more fiscally responsible or the more economically competent in some circumstances despite what the track records show. Um, when it comes to healthcare, on the flip side, oftentimes people will look at, and I'm speaking in really broad brush strokes, real generalizations here, people will look at conservative parties and, and see them as a threat to public healthcare anyway, or to fully funded healthcare or to equitable healthcare. Did this budget alleviate some of those concerns? Did this budget, with the amount of money being spent on healthcare, and we'll talk about where it's being spent and, and what that says, but did it, did it take away some of the NDP's ammo on that front, do you think, Jason? They're trying to. Um, you know, I think, you know, maybe polling and, uh, you know, some the, the weeks to come will uh, determine that. Um, you know, for the last couple of years, health care was really in dire straits and it was quite uh you know, quite problematic, um, especially when you bring in uh, flu season. I mean, one thing that has that the uh, government has going for it in a way is that the election is held in May after flu season, after the kind of the rush uh, season for hospitals and emergency wards and and ICUs. Um, you know, they've been putting an effort in and they've been, you know, with this with John Cowell, with that 90 day update uh, earlier this week with uh, with the budget, um, they are doing their level best to take health care off the board to make it harder for the NDP to say health care is in crisis. Um, they, they've been trying to you know, tamp down uh, conversations about uh, curriculum for the same reason. Um, they are in trying to do, you know, the election year spending um, is, is almost defensive in a way for a political party to say, you know, sometimes you'll see a, a party doing big, big things and saying we're, you know, have it be on the offense, saying we're going to save for the future. We're going to, you know, save healthcare for generation. This is more, we're doing things and we don't think that the NDP will be able to criticize us as education in crisis, healthcare in crisis. As far as the economy goes, um, I, I think that people might, see remember what was in front of them at the time when rachel notley was premier the economy was bad when daniel smith is here now the economy is good and the economy is pre currently good and we want to ruin a good thing um there will be some people who say you know who understand how the cycles go how some things are bigger than the premier and the government and say you know this economy is going so well we can give it to anybody and it'll be hard to screw up um, you know, we shall see uh, what pockets uh, of voters uh, pick which slot. 
Hmm. Um, interesting comments in our live chat on YouTube. Steven says the NDP needs to evolve from hollering and heckling. If they want to gain anything anywhere, trolling on social media won't win them gains. That from Steven. Tracy says the NDP ran a terrible campaign in 2019. But then again, MLAs probably didn't know how to solve the big problems. It's likely scary to realize how bad things are. Uh, Roberto, I had an interesting opportunity on, on Monday of this week to sit down with Rachel Notley in, in sort of a one-on-one. To, uh, Darren Billis was there. It was one-on-two, but still, you get the idea. The, the fireside chat in front of the uh, Alberta tourism advocates at, at the big summit there. And I, and I asked her, I said, when people ask you at the doors, what's different? What's different right now from the Rachel Notley or from the NDP of, say, 2015? And you know what she said right away without hesitation? She said, we're ready. Like, she acknowledged that in 2015, it's like, I mean, the, the worst kept secret in Alberta at the time, but like it was a surprise victory kind of for everybody to go from four to 54. And, you know, but she said, we're ready this time. Is that party doing enough? Do you think to convey that? You, you, I guess what I'm asking is like, you know, people are electing a CEO, really. And not everybody prefers the government business comparison, but let me say they're electing a leader that they need to be able to trust with their beloved province. How's the NDP doing on that front in your estimation? I'm sure I would say I don't appreciate the CEO uh, analogy yeah, please there push in back. some ways, yeah. but, but fair enough. Um, you're, you're right. I mean, people are electing a leader and Rachel Notley in some ways came into power because of a confluence of events happening in the economy, but also on the right of the political spectrum. And it was a fluke and they did have to rule under very difficult circumstances. Now, I think one thing we have to mention is that resource royalties are very volatile and very much out of the control of any government. And so, you know, this government likes to pretend they're geniuses for taking this natural resource money and spending it on all these things um, to balance a budget. But in reality, these are natural resources that are finite, but also controlled by world markets. But about your question about the NDP, I think, you know, it's really difficult in some ways to assess the NDP because I think in some ways they have abandoned some of what many people would think of as pure NDP kind of politics, the real social democratic side of the 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 venue, I guess. And I think, you know, in some ways, Rachel Notley has worked very hard over the last four oh. years, but also the last eight years to really try and draw in the centrists in Alberta, the former progressive conservatives who feel left out by the UCP and their push to this right, um, the right wing. But I think in doing so, you know, the NDP has lost some of that, that core or that vision and some of their own base. And I think in some ways we're going to see this during the election where there's going to be fewer volunteers. They may have a ton of money, but they're spending it all on advertising rather than on volunteers and organizers and door knockers. And I think we'll see that play out. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen in the election. I'm a historian, not a f fortune teller. Um, <laughs> but I think this is going to be an interesting one. And I think both parties are in trouble in some ways and are going to have to fight in their own different ways. Now, that's such an interesting point. Both parties are in trouble. So it's like, I guess the question is, Who's in who's in less trouble? It's not exactly the most inspiring question, is it? It's it's hardly Barack Obama and hope. Uh, Dave, how is this campaign going to be different than maybe anything else that we've seen? Well, we have two parties that are I mean, you know, it was already mentioned like 2015. It was 
kind of a fluke. It was a perfect storm for the NDP to form government. The PCs collapsed. The Wild Rose had just collapsed and kind of came back. Uh, and there was a big wave. And Rachel Notley uh, was in the right place at the right time. And the PCs ran a phenomenally bad campaign at the same time they collapsed. Uh, 2019 wasn't really on equal footing either. The, the, the NDP were government, but it became very clear the moment that the PCs and the Wild Rose merged, the UCP was way ahead in the polls. They were way ahead in fundraising. It was pretty clear how the 2019 election was going to turn out. The UCP were going to win. The NDP didn't really have a path to victory. The question was how many seats were, were each party going to win. It was going to be a big UCP majority. Were the NDP going to win 20 seats or 30 seats? They ended up winning 24. 2023 seems, I mean, you have two parties that are on a little bit more, a lot more equal footing than we've seen in a long time. So the NDP, the UCP, they both have almost their full slate of candidates nominated. Um, they both have a lot of money in the bank. I mean, the NDP had more money in the bank. The UCP is catching up after the last quarter of 2022. They raised a lot of money. Um, I expect they'll be raising a lot of money. They're getting a lot of support from some big business packs right now. We've seen in advertising. Um, you know, the polls are close, especially in Calgary, where it, met, where it seems like it's going to matter. Um, I think that's the big difference between uh, this election and previous elections is we actually have two legitimately electorally competitive parties. Now, I mean, I, I, I talking about what what touching on what, what Roberta was talking about, like, yeah, the, the NDP are a this isn't a traditional this isn't your grandfather's NDP. There's a lot less shop stewards running and, and activists running for NDP nominations and running for the nominated for the NDP than there are uh, lawyers and energy economists and people who would traditionally be 10 years ago. They would have been running for the progressive conservatives and especially in Calgary. And this time they're running for the NDP. So it really shows how Rachel Notley and this is an intentional thing. They've moved to the center. I like to call the NDP a center-left-ish party because they're not really a left-wing party. And they're, sometimes they're not even really center-left. But they've really focused on nominating candidates that appeal to that center group because that's how they. That's where they feel their, their path to victory is to actually winning votes in Calgary. And yeah, they've. I mean, I've talked to New Democrats who are long-time active, hard-party activists and actual leftists, and they don't feel like they really have a home in the NDP. But the NDP is decided it wants to be a big tent party. Yeah, well, I mean, they probably decided that they want to be a serious... Uh, uh, no, I'm not no, 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 going to no, say no. they want to be a serious party. No, no, I, don't, I don't mean that in... Roberto, I'll come... I'm they, not ignoring you, Jason. Roberto, I'll they come right win. back. They want to win. Jason, go ahead, and then, and then right back to oh. Roberta. Jason, go I ahead. Mean, to that point, and Roberta can you know jump in afterwards, but the, the reality is that for most of the last several decades, the NDP base was 7, 8, 9, 10%, maybe in the high Ray Martin days, 20%. Uh, to govern, they need to do more. Um, they need to do better. So they have to, yeah, they will have to to sacrifice some of that base uh, that constitutes about 9% of the, of the populace. They have to chase the other, you know, 90%. I mean, of course, they're not going to get 90%. They're, you know, we're not in, we're not in North Korea here. Um, but to chase 40% um, of the vote, 45% of the vote, like they got in 2015, um, they, yeah, they have to uh, wind up uh, disappointing a lot of people on the traditional core left when their support was about, was in the single digits. Uh, yeah, um, this is an interesting comment here from Dwayne, who says, and I'd be curious to know who he's talking about, but he says a former Peter Lougheed era cabinet minister compared Rachel Notley to Peter Lougheed. Um, th th this brings me to Roberta to my point. I was going to say we, we actually this is this is a true story. Last night skating on the outdoor rink, me and my buddies and, and of 
I won't say of course, but all of a sudden talk turns to politics, and you have like the <laughs> ardent conservative who just you got, he can't wait. He's just, you know he's just very you know like the people that are very passionate, regardless of partisan stripe of their party. He was very proudly flying the conservative flag in this conversation last night, and then a, a buddy of ours who's actually a, a financial manager, and, and all the things like if you were to stereotype, you would think he was a conservative voter. Well, it turns out he's not, and it turns out he's going to have an NDP lawn sign, and they started kind of getting into this thing, and he said he said to me, he said, you tell me, he says to, to our conservative buddy, he says, what's one thing that Rachel Notley really blew it on? What's one thing where she really blew it when she was premier? And the guy's kind of humming and hawing. He goes, wow, minimum wage. He's like, minimum wage really hurt a lot of the employers. And then this guy goes, yeah, but like, what about the people earning minimum wage? And so we start having this debate, right? And by the end of it, we've got this debate happening on how Rachel Notley was actually governing like a progressive conservative. And I was just doing my best to stay out of it. I just had a nice smile on my face listening to the... But how would you, like when Dave talks about them as a center, center left party, I mean, how do you characterize the Alberta NDP? They're a little bit different than any other NDP across the country. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the challenges with the NDP across the country and federally is that they are now a mix of very different parties that the Alberta NDP is very, very different than the BC NDP and all the other NDPs. And, you know, I think it's interesting to hear this conversation about how, you know, the metrics or the the strategy that Rachel Notley and the NDP are taking is to try and attract those former progressive conservative voters, that centrist piece. And as Dave said, they're kind of center, center left, I'd say generally center, center right. Yeah. But the reality here, I think, is that the NDP, no party really in this province is offering an alternative ver- vision, which is actually quite popular. And so the NDP is trying to attract this former conservative voter, which I think there are many and it may work out for them, especially in Calgary. But the reality is, is that there's actually a lot of popularity around things like socialism. The poor Fraser Institute just discovered socialism is actually very popular in Canada. The Green New Deal is incredibly popular an energy transition, a just transition, regardless of what the Alberta UCP wants to claim. And so the reality is, I think, you know, the NDP is making this calculation that they can attract enough from that center, center right group to take power. But I think actually they might be more successful if they promoted a real alternative vision of this province that wasn't reliant on natural resource revenues, that was focused on providing programs for people from tra- to transition out out of this economy that whether we like it or not is coming to an end. And so, you know, I think there are, I think both Jason and Dave are right that this is the strategy the NDP has taken. I would argue and I would like to tell them I think it's the wrong strategy. I think they should actually be trying to bring in all of those other voters from their base and the young people in particular who tend not to vote and that that's where they should be focusing their attention. But I'm not in charge of their electoral strategy. And so mm-hmm. um, we'll see how that all plays out in the end. Yeah, I'd be curious to pick your, your brains on this idea, which is like which voter or which faction of the party uh, any party is willing to, I won't say Ah, do I say sacrifice or neglect? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you, you look at, for example, a conservative party that, that may swing further and further and further to the right. Now, whether that was on maybe on COVID policy or, or maybe it would be some some form of or, or manifestation of its economic policy. But you may say, well, they're they're willing to to, to, to lose or to risk losing 
the centrist element of their party. Whereas if the NDP, for example, might might be willing to 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 adopt what some might describe as a more center or center right ideology or position on something, they would risk losing the hard left, you know, as an example, or be willing to. Who do you see that impacting most? Where do you see that happening with with the two parties here? And and what do you read into that? Like, do do you see the NDP saying, you know, maybe maybe uh, we're always going to have support from the far left because they don't have another option. So maybe we don't throw them as many bones. Do you see the the, the conservatives saying the same thing about the centrists? What are you reading into it? Yeah, one of the big dynamics in this election is that. Oh, sorry, was that for Dave? No, 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 go go ahead. Go ahead, 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 jump in. You're going. Um, one of the big dynamics about this election is that there are no other choices. People will see pe- there is a binary in a way we haven't really had in Alberta um, in a really long time. I mean, yes, in 2019, it was clearly a, a not Lee versus Kenny campaign. Uh, but, you know, there were still there was still uh, the Alberta Party and Alberta Liberal Party at the uh, at the debate podiums. Podia? Podiums? Says Podia. Oh, Podia. good question platforms platforms, platforms Elections, there you go platforms there you go split the middle um uh, uh, podia it is, it is podia, podia. Well, it's actually, well no it says actually i'm just looking at wiktionary.org and it says both are acceptable but mark Yusuf, i've never even heard of podia before <laughs> or, or i could i could have gone easier and say lecterns yes if you um, wanted to really class it up yeah <laughs> there you go trying to uh anyway i had a point there um the debate is going to be one two people uh, traditionally, the uh, way you uh, decide the debate is who has seats in the legislature. Two parties have seats for the first time since, I think, 93, uh, when it was just uh, liberals and uh, PCs. Uh, and the Alberta Party uh, and the uh, Liberal Party don't seem like they're going to have anywhere near full slates or significant uh, amounts of candidates in uh, writings. They certainly don't have many nominated yet. Uh, the parties on the um, up to the right of the UCP, that in Wildrose Independence Party and Independence Party uh, don't seem to have much traction. Um, it, it's a, in a binary race. Everybody, in the same way, the states is like this. Um, you know, it, it's one or the other. Um, so there are going to be those on the both on the UCP side on the kind of the traditional, very very hardcore Smith base of the UCP party saying, we just have to band together and get this party elected to keep away the NDP. And you're gonna see the same thing among um, a lot of people on the left. Uh, People will say, we have to, you know, all band together, keep out the uh, UCP, because I think in this election, maybe even more than the last election, there'll be a lot of catastrophization of the other side. Um, You know, the UCP Smith side will say if the Notley Singh Trudeau World Economic Forum coalition, uh, when we are doomed, our province is pooched, uh, we'll all have to move to the states. And uh, you'll have a lot of people uh, in the NDP camp saying if Smith comes in, we have another four years of UCP government under Danielle Smith, who is to the right of even Jason Kenney. Um, who knows what's going to happen to this province? Maybe we'll have to all move to BC and, um, you know, open wineries in Penticton. Um, but so I, because of that, I don't think there's going to be, you know, some people may stay home. There will be some people, you know, maybe on the UCP side and on the NDP side who just are frustrated and find their party unsatisfying and stay home. But the stakes of this party in each side's mind will be so high. I expect pretty high uh, turnout 
this year. Um, and I expect uh, there to be not a lot of people who are going to be sitting on the sidelines. I can tell, Roberta, that you totally disagree with that. I do totally disagree, actually. I think there's going to be very low voter turnout because I think as we've seen that around the globe, but across Canada as well, that when governments are, and parties are not offering anything exciting or visionary for people, the option for them is to just stay home. And I think that's what we're going to see a lot of. I think Jason's right that there's going to be a lot of catastrophizing and a lot of people will vote on that basis just to keep the UCP out or to keep the NDP out. But I think the fact that, um, you know, the NDP in particular isn't mobilizing their base or a potential base means I think that a lot of people are going to end up just staying home because they're not going to see a vision in either party. And I say that from a personal perspective that, you know, I'm a hardcore voter. I believe very strongly in voting. And honestly, I'm starting to think maybe the solution is staying home and not voting, that that is my vote to the Mm. system, that the system has failed. And I'm not I'm not happy to support anybody at this point. But I look at 2019. I don't know if any people were saying there were great visions Mm. by either party. I mean, democracy. What was it? Economy, jobs, pipelines, economy, pipelines. Yeah. A big, big, bold vision. Yet turnout was 68 percent compared to you know, below sub sub 40s, sub like sub 40s, I think, even in the 2008 election, uh, I was. But I think that was a vision, Jason, that was a, a climate activist vision, or at least framed as one right carbon tax versus not carbon tax. Yeah. And as small a vision as that is, I think that's still a vision. Are we going to keep pushing this economy based on this resource? Or are we going to kind of start thinking differently about it? And I mean, I agree with you on lots of the, the points that you've made there. But I, I would expect voter turnout isn't going to be as high as we think it is, partly because we're seeing that all across the globe. Voters are done with the system because the system doesn't work for them. And so they're just not showing up at the polls. It's hard to convince people to make that journey, to stand in a line, to mark a box when they don't see anything in it for them on either side of the pla- of the of the political sphere. I'm it a- could come down to vision, a vision versus a choice election. Um, you know, this might not, the, the cho- there'll be certainly a choice election here. Um, and people can select what sort of Alberta they want, um, whether it's as exciting an Al- a vision as everybody uh, perceives, maybe not. Um, but I think when there's a stark choice and when the stakes are high, when there's real potential to elect to decide the government, um, those tend to be recipes for high turnout. Hmm. I, uh, I I'm not gonna. I always try to offer these caveats before I say something obvious. Uh, so I, to to these three esteemed panelists, nothing I am about to offer is profound in any way. But it but it but it demands to be addressed. And and it's just like you know um, you know professor, like you just said, you know you talk about the you know like the, the 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 vision, and then you talk about like what what Alberta looks like in the economy and all these things, and then we talk about the Green New Deal, and we talk about the just transition and the carbon tax and all of the things that factor in. It all comes back, doesn't it? It comes back to the golden goose it comes back to oil and gas and 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 i often lament uh that i think that platforms and political criticisms and political messaging is overly simplified and that is that justin trudeau and rachel notley and jagmeet singh want to kill the oil and gas industry and that jason kenney and daniel smith are the greatest thing that has ever happened to the oil and gas industry and there, there probably needs to be a little bit more nuance there and there probably needs to be a bit more of an informed discussion but the whole context of our conversation today is the budget that dropped earlier this week and you and i were talking dave before this show started off air in the green room 16 
billion dollars in forecasted royalty revenue and you're talking about the, the the piece of the pie and of course that number could change this is forecast and forecasts often do but it is impossible to ignore the reality that oil and gas still is such a huge influence in the province of Alberta mm-hmm. that a party like the NDP that wants to win in Calgary, a party that, like, that wants to scoop some seats in rural ridings has to be, don't they have to be pretty careful in their messaging while the UCP's criticism will squarely focus on the fact that it always has, which is that they don't believe that the NDP should be overseeing an industry that is so important to Alberta's economy. Well, I, I don't think that Rachel Notley's NDP has been anything but as friendly as possible, mm. that, as as they could be to the oil and gas industry. But and, does and, that and, message and, and, land? Does well, that resonate with people? Well, then that's that's why you hear Daniel Smith talking about the Justin Trudeau, Jagmeet Singh, Rachel Notley, World Economic Forum uh, Alliance, right? That talking point, the Trudeau Notley Singh Alliance, is something that Smith. Is, I mean. That Kenny used, I think, a little bit more strategically when he was premier, but but Daniel Smith has been using like a sledgehammer, uh, and it worked for her when the just transition stuff came out, and they were able to they they were able to put Rachel Notley in a corner, and Notley, you know, she felt like she had to respond. She was probably hearing stuff from her candidates on the doors in Calgary about it because it was a talking point that worked for worked against worked against the NDP. But it, realistically, the NDP is a it, it, they're going to be j- probably just as friendly to the oil and gas industry as the UCP is. is. I mean, you know, we're probably not going to do our star and stuff like that. But o- overall, when the stuff, the stuff that matters to the to the oil and gas industry, the UC, the NDP is going to be probably just 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 as friendly. Um, I don't think you could. It it would be hard to be a premier of Alberta and win an election. Now you could be a politician and be critical of the oil and gas industry and propose something different. Propose propose uh, you know radical changes. And you know we do need some radical changes here in Alberta because you know the golden goose isn't going to be laying these golden eggs forever. We're at the top of the roller coaster right now. If we're ride, if the, if this budget's on top, of, we're riding the royalty roller coaster, like Jim Prentice used to say and Rachel Notley said for a while. You know, good times are good when when thing when the price of oil is up, but when the price of oil goes down and it's an international uh, international commodity, we don't control the pricing. Uh, you know, two years from now there could be a six sixteen billion dollar hole in the budget, and you know, we never seem to be in a position where we're willing as a province and our political leadership is willing to actually ask those tough questions about revenue. We're, we're so satisfied in having that. um, I mean, I've heard Janet, Janet Brown talk about this pollster from Calgary um, talk about how, you know, Albertans want, uh, you know, they want high spending. They want, public services, well-funded public services, but they also don't want to pay taxes. Yes. And, and having that, having this, these royalties, having this golden egg allows government to get away with it. And, you know, and we get away with it, we get away with it. And when things are bad, we talk about, oh, well now it's thing. Now things are so bad that we can't actually radically change because we'd be too, too, too drastic. And when things are great, we don't want to upset the apple cart. So we can't talk about revenue. So we can never actually have these tough talks. And we do need, you know, maybe, Maybe an election, and I, you know, none of the parties want to talk about this because it because it is controversial and it is it is a big deal. Uh, but you know, at some point in this province, we do need to have a conversation about revenue and how we actually fund the public services we run. We have excellent some excellent public services in this province, um, but it's you know it's funded by royalty revenues that we don't control. Yeah, yeah, but Dave, you're asking politicians to have a very unsexy conversation. It is uh, right before an election. Where, listen, I want to respect all of your time. We've kept you way too long, so I just will ask this in closing. Um, essentially, what this all comes down to is is that Danielle Smith can lose. If my math is correct, she can lose 18 seats and still win. 
if my math is correct. It's around there. Put yeah. it that way. She could lose. She could certainly lose 15 seats and still win. Uh, Rachel Notley's got to gain 20 seats to form a majority government. Roberta, what's going to happen? Can Notley do it? I mean, I've been saying for two years now that I'd put money on them not doing it because they're not doing what they need to do to actually win this election. So, I mean, I'm very skeptical, but I I mean, personally, I hope that they can do it, but they, I don't think they can. What do they need to do to win the election? Well, I mean, I think it's in some ways it's thinking about what Dave was just talking about, which is the future of this province, because I think one of the things we forget to talk about with the oil and gas sector is that there's actually two parts of the oil and gas sector. There's the workers who work in the oil and gas sector, and then there's the owners who own the oil and gas sector. And the UCP is very, very good for the latter group of those. They're shuffling tons of money into the hands of the owners of oil and gas. But the workers are being automated out and being pushed out regardless of what any government is going to do. And so my argument would be that the Notley um, NDP needs to really really start thinking about how to tap into that change that's coming and really convince people that there's a different way to go through this than just to suffer and give a whole bunch of money to already wealthy oil and gas executives. Mm, we've got some great comments here in the live chat. Uh, Kathy says, it's so interesting <laughs> that the United Conservative uh, supporters complain about the size of government of the NDP, but the UCP has a larger staff than the NDP ever yeah. did. Uh, Tracy says, change requires investment and a lot of tough decisions. Uh, we will likely need a provincial sales tax. I can guarantee we will not see that in either platform. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think I may bet my house that neither is going to pitch a PST before an election. Jason, what would Rachel Notley have to do to gain 20 seats and form government? It's going to come down to the ballot question, I think. If the ballot question is who can get toughest on Ottawa um, and who is the best steward of the economy as it was in 2019, uh, it's a huge uphill climb for her. If it's you know, a referendum on who's the best steward of health care, um, then she has it good. Um, like I said earlier, I think that uh, uh, the UCP and Daniel Smith have done their level best to take that argument off the map. And I'm not sure how, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the healthcare system. If there are crises, there are, uh, you know, huge problems bubbling up, uh, then that works in Daniel's, uh, sorry, not least favor. Um, if it's a referendum on Danielle Smith, um, that will probably help. Uh, it always helps if, if uh, people, you know, if it's a referendum on the uh, on the leader in charge, that helps uh, the thing. But I think what it might come down to is it becoming a referendum on who's offering the more radical government, who's offering the more radical choices, and the person offering more radicalism loses. Mm. And you'll see both sides trying to paint the other as radical and themselves, as in this budget, as the moderate um reasonable competent choice yeah i like that point i agree with you there dave finer what do you yeah i think i'm I, touching on just continue on jason's point i think that the uh the two parties will present themselves as as uh you know daniel smith will be steady as you go with new leadership not jason kenny and rachel notley will present herself as steady as you go but new leadership without Daniel Smith or Jason Kenney. Yeah, I want to thank all three of you for great insights uh, in this roundtable. Uh, Roberta, you can catch her commentary on the Alberta Advantage podcast. She's joining us from Calgary. That's where Jason Markusoff is as well. You can read his great work at cbc.ca and make sure you check out the Dave Berta podcast and Substack. That's Dave Cornway joining me here live in the Real Talk studio. Thank you very much to the three of you. 
Real Talkers, you can let us know how this landed with you. I mean, there are eight. I mean, the engagement here is off the charts on the live yeah, chat, which I, I really appreciate it. Have yeah. you been keep, keeping an eye on it, Johnny? I'm just watching it. And uh, yeah, I, I that last point, I think, hit with me, too. I feel like it's kind of like Lemmings, like both Rachel and Danielle are really close to an edge of being too extreme one way or the other, right, right or left. And I think what he was saying right there is one person just has to kind of wait for the other to go too far here, yeah. right? Uh, but for me, I, I, I want to hear Rachel a more... I know we talk about just transition on the show all the time, but yeah. I just want to hear a more firm plan. I think if she can win people over in Alberta, that she has a really good plan for just transition and getting there. I know it's going to take a while. I think that can really help her. I heard a really great quote the other day. I, I was going to say it on the show because I know you'll love it. Uh, someone said, you know, the Stone Age, we didn't stop using stones. We just found better ways. And, and that's where we're going. Like you see all the analysts saying, and I know 60 years ago we said, we only have 50 years of oil left. And that, you know, it's kind of like not true at all. But that's where everything's going right now. Oil's going to be too expensive eventually compared to other forms of energy. Uh, we're not going to stop using oil. It's always going to be there. But the economy, the amount of it is going to diminish a lot, right? Yeah. So I just feel like, you know, right now, Danielle's like, it's going to be devastating. We can't lose a quarter of our economy, blah, blah, blah. And and Rachel, I think, just needs to, to give us a really good plan or make people feel comfortable with how we're going to get to this. And I think if she could do that, she could win over more people, right? I like this comment here from Jason who says, I'm really surprised nobody's talking about the... Uh, sovereignty act and how daniel didn't Smith talk about it at could, all there no and, and you know what but that's i mean first of all with a panel like that we can go for six hours you know what i mean there's so many things we didn't touch on obviously i mean you're going to get election coverage here on real talk that's going to look different than anywhere else and you're going to go well the writ hasn't even dropped it what are you talking about election coverage i mean let's be honest the campaigns are underway and uh, <laughs> this is something i know that people care about deeply but but jason's right a four-year term i mean some of the things we talked about this fear-mongering that'll happen i don't even know if i want to call it that but you're, you're going to have each leader or each campaign painting the other leader as an extremist or as a radical mm -hmm. on some other front. And BV some of it just might said not least not an extreme leftist well, guy. I didn't close. say that at all. No, I know you're not. But I I'm just, just saying like, they'll try to paint her like that. Exactly. Not least not even close no. to a radical leftist. As a matter of fact, radical leftist Dave's sitting right here. Radical. I'm not calling you one. I'm just saying that if you <laughs> if a person is a radical leftist, they're going to be completely disappointed with Rachel Notley, to be quite honest with you and spell it out. But a lot of the stuff and a lot of the criticism, I'm going to sound like I'm carrying water for her. I'm not. I mean, prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. But a lot of it is the hypothetical. I mean, it, it, it's the real tinfoil hat kind of stuff. It's like the Notley Singh Trudeau Alliance, the World Economic Forum, George Soros. I mean, all the, all the stuff kind of comes around. It's, it's like this implied global conspiracy. With Daniel Smith on the other side, people can say, do you or do you not want Alberta to pull out of the Canada pension plan? Like, do you or do you not want Alberta to walk away from the RCMP? Do you or do you not want Alberta to threaten to leave Canada? Like, these are more, th this is not uh, sort of like the Trudeau Singh Notley hypothetical alliance. This is not the fear mongering or not the type of stuff about like Klaus Schwab and, and like, you know, people, you know, wealth taxes and all this kind of stuff. This, this is like, no. 
Danielle Smith has, has, has said this is what she intends to do. And by winning an election, that's a mandate that pushes her into territory where you can do a lot in four years. And so I think that that's a, that's a bit of a different nuance mm-hmm. in, in how those two leaders will be painted. One of them, Danielle Smith, is spelling out exactly what she intends to do. Mm-hmm. And it gives the NDP an opportunity to have more focused and direct questions. When you want to talk about radical, I mean, you know, threatening to leave Canada. No. Danielle Smith will insist, as she did on Tuesday when I talked to her and I sat down with her at that fireside chat, I talked about the sovereignty action. She she stopped me and she said, it is the Alberta sovereignty within a United <laughs> Canada Act. She was quick to jump on me and to point that out. And so if you say, well, you're arguing about leaving Canada, she'll say, no, we're not. She will say, no, we're not. But the point is, it gives the NDP some ammo on that front. Yeah. And and I mean, you, you talked about pensions, withdrawing from the Canada pension. It's plan. a big deal. That's a huge. It's, I think I really feel like it's a sleeper issue that the, the NDP kind of talked about it a bit. And Daniel Smith, she there was a Rick Bell column. Like, I think it was late last year, it was in yeah. December. And she talked about did an interview with Rick and said, maybe, you know, maybe we'll have a referendum on it before, you know, before the end of or before, by the next election. And and then, you know, as Daniel Smith has been known to do since she became premier, she'll say something. And then a couple of days later, she'll backtrack on it and say, no, no, actually, we're not ready. We're not going to do that. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe later at some point in the future. But these are the kind of things that a that a provincial government, you know, has the ability to do. And if the UCP are going to do th- do something as radical uh, and as drastic as withdrawing from the Canada pension plan, which is going to impact every single Albertan mm. uh, and probably not in a great way. Um, then, uh, then they should run on it. Then that should that should be a question in the in the election because you know, political parties run election campaigns. They run on platforms, but then they do stuff after when when they get elected that was that wasn't necessarily in 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 their election platform. The big one that I, that I that I like to point out is after the two thousand eight election, the you know Ed Stelmach got the PCs got reelected. Then they created Alberta Health Services. They did a massive reorg. Of, of the entire public health care system, that was nowhere in the progressive conservative campaign platform in the election that had just happened months before. The other one, I mean, the one that the NDP got, got huge criticism for, which I actually think is kind of a fair criticism, is the carbon taxes. The NDP didn't actually run on the carbon tax in, 20, in 2015. They talked about taking action for climate on, on climate change. And, you know, if you knew enough about that and you were paying attention, you probably would have probably would have put two and two together and said, okay, well, they're probably going to consider a carbon tax. But it was never in their in their in their platform. So parties can do this kind of stuff. You know, the the, the UCP has done similar things: privatizing or trying to privatize parks, opening up coal mining in the Rocky Mountains. You, Ryan, have talked a lot about yeah. the coal mining. I mean, those weren't issues that 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 were front and center in the UCP platform in 2019. Yet, those were issues that dominated the political discussion in Alberta. Um, and it was something that the government did, and they didn't really have a mandate to do that. And yeah. and the outburst and the outcrying and the opposition from the people who actually live there in those communities demonstrated that they didn't have a mandate. To Safe to say that the conservatives are lucky that that coal mining story didn't surface 18 months later than yeah. it did. I yeah. mean, they would have a real problem on their hands Absolutely. right now with with an election date looming and that much anger from rural areas and typically conservative jurisdictions. Like the anger was palpable yeah. uh, at that time. We, we talked about lawn sign campaigns and citizen led action and grassroots kind of stuff. That CPAWS campaign of yeah. Save Alberta Parks and those lawn signs was, was absolutely remarkable. Hugely <laughs> successful campaign yeah. on CPAWS Park. Yeah, you would have been in Cologne at the time that that was happening. Was yeah. that where people in BC talking about that? Of course, yeah. yeah. And I saw it online too. It's funny, everyone in the chat thinks I 
trying to paint Rachel as an extreme <laughs> nah, leftist now. They're like, you totally said that. I'm like, <laughs> holy crap. Hey, man. Um, Dave, it's great to see you again, man. And it's awesome to have you here in studio. Make sure Thanks you so much, uh, support Dave on his sub stack and make sure you check out his. You're back in the podcast. Game. I am. You, you took some time out. What brought you back? We uh, Well, there's so much going on. I'm really bad at wrapping up. No, no, no. That's okay. I just keep there's, this. There's, there's, I, I, got, I got no schedule today. Yeah. There's, there's so much going on in Alberta politics that uh, my good friend Adam Rosenhart and I, yeah. uh, did, who, we did the Dayberta podcast before. We took a, we went on a semi-permanent hiatus before. Yes. Saying, you know, it's we're taking a break, but but you know, we'll come back and now we're back and you can find uh, the Dayberta podcast on the Dayberta Substack. Yeah. A lot of a lot of people commenting that they love Dave's podcast. Real talk still awesome. number one, but they said if you need another one. <laughs> yeah. Well it's hard, it's it's hard to compete with this. Like, come well, on, come hey, on. Hey, hey, listen, uh, you know, we believe like you talk to I don't know, let me use an example like restaurateurs mm-hmm. or brewers, like craft brewers, and they want other restaurants next door. They want other breweries in their district. And I figure the more the merrier when it comes to quality journalism, when it comes to talk shows with integrity that are presenting uh, conversations that matter to people. Uh, I think it's great to see uh, the independent media landscape really. I mean, look at who, who we talked to today, right? Roberta's on from Alberta Advantage. Um, some people, I saw one comment, someone said, the Alberta Advantage pod is a little too seize the means of production for me, <laughs> uh, which is fine. Like, that, that's great. They, they they wear their hearts on their sleeve. They say we yep. are we represent left politics. What what you see is what you get. They do great work. They they yeah. do great work, and that's yeah. a that's a valid perspective that demands to have representation. So that's great. It doesn't mean you have to. You know, we don't necessarily uh, sit here and like try to tick boxes. We need the left perspective. We need the right perspective. We need the center perspective every time. But we sure want to make sure that we have platforms for those to be represented. This is a province of nearly five million people, and there are many many different uh, lived experiences that that need to make sure that they have a seat at the table. Um, Dave, you're doing great work. Keep it up. You can check out DaveBerta.ca. Keeping a keen eye as well on nomination updates and and things that are happening there. I saw somebody here trying to figure out in the live chat. uh, They go, what's up with Raj Sherman? Is Raj like left (laughs) or right? So he won that Edmonton Whitemud nominee. He's running as a United Conservative candidate. Raj Sherman, former Liberal Party leader, is now the United Conservative Party candidate in Edmonton Whitemud. Yeah, and he'll be running, Rocky Pancholi running again? Rocky yep. That's going to be, uh, I mean, uh, I I like Raj personally, but Rocky's arguably, I mean, can I say, like... Yeah, no. She could be the next leader of the NDP. One, absolutely. Like Racky Pancholi. Racky Pancholi could be the premier of Alberta she's, at some point. Yeah, she's a force. Yeah. And yeah. you know what I'll do? I make a quick note here that you and I have agreed on that. So when it happens, uh, years from now, we can go back and say our crystal balls were crystal clear. Sounds great. On that Friday. That's Dave Cornway, a political blogger. These conversations are presented by Real Talk sponsors like the family-owned Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. How's your family member doing the furry one I'm talking about? The the cat or dog? Uh, Grand Dog Essentials wants to make sure that your beloved four-legged family members are getting the protein and the nutrition that they need to live their highest quality life. Do yourself a favor right now, whether it's maybe some uh, joint pain, uh, maybe it's kind of some hip pain, maybe it's the the quality of of, of your dog or cat's coat, maybe it looks like it could be better, maybe they're disinterested in their kibble. Whatever it is, this is a great day to check out the blog at granddog.ca. Information and tips to feeding your dog or cat a raw food diet. They deliver to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, or Central Alberta. And the promo code Grand, uh, Real Talk rather, takes 10% off your first-time order at granddog.ca. 
We always love when people are wowed by our studio, John, aren't we? We're real proud of it. Dave walks in here, nice and nice, and, and he goes, who built this thing? I said, well, Dave, in fact, it was the team at Complete Care Restoration, and we're so grateful to have worked with them. It goes without saying, when you're embarking on a construction project, a renovation project, or in, in many cases, uh, disaster restoration, fire, flood, mold, asbestos, you need to be able to trust the team that is doing that work based on our first-hand experience, I can tell you with no hesitation that the team at Complete Care Restoration does an unbelievable job from start to finish all the way in between. Hey, we've gone back to them a few times, needed this fix, needed that tweaked. I mean, an unbelievable team of quality professionals. You can find them online at completecarerestoration.ca. Don't forget, if you're in that nightmare scenario, fire, flood, or otherwise, Chances are your insurance policy lets you choose who does the work. We recommend you choose Complete Care Restoration. At Friesen Brothers, for more than 65 years, they have been putting quality food on family tables across the province of Alberta. They believe that really great food matters. Check out their family flyers here. If you go to Friesen.com, that's F-R-E-S-O-N. The Family Essentials Flyer gives you some great tools, uh, not just to find quality food for low prices every day, but also the recipes. Yeah, that's right. These are a lot of times they're they're homegrown, home-cooking recipes, some of them from the family cookbook. That's right. This company's still family-owned after more than 65 years. The Family Essentials Flyer. Look for it in your mailbox if you're in one of the 16 communities that has a Friesen Brothers, or, of course, you can check it out online anytime. You can find Friesen Brothers under the Sponsors link on our website. That's uh, ryanjesperson.com. If your summer is looking like, I don't know, maybe a project is looming in the backyard, maybe it's the front yard you're going to overhaul. You're going to pursue that curb appeal that your realtor keeps telling you about. Add some value to your home or maybe just add some value to the experience of heading outside in your number one investment. That's your residence. Bring your outdoor space to life with the custom landscape team at Eden Landscaping. More than 20 years of on-the-ground experience earning referrals and return business from their clients in the greater Edmonton area. Eden Landscaping's in the business of solving problems. So for you, maybe that's irrigation and drainage. Hey, maybe it's a retaining wall, or maybe it's excavation. They do it all. You can kickstart the journey to work with them today at landscapeedmonton.ca. And before we get to trash talk, I wanted to mention our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. You know, there's something, there's something happening here, and it's a real travesty. You know what it is? It's that not enough people know about the Dairy Queen chicken baskets. That's right, the chicken strips. So I'm going to make it my personal mission right now to remind you that DQ has the best chicken strips in the game. And I'm talking in particular at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle. Westmount and Baseline Road for a limited time you can pick up a four piece or six piece chicken strips and fry rings basket that's crispy fries crispy onion rings and it comes with delicious ranch dipping sauce as well when you visit a Dairy Queen a DQ in Northwest Edmonton or Sherwood Park you make sure you let them know that Real Talk sent ya you a big onion ring guy? Like, if you if you have to choose between fries or onion rings, which way do you go? I love it, a, a good onion ring, yeah. Yeah, but onion rings can be hit or miss. Yeah, sometimes, 
You know when they, they they come out too hot and then you go to bite them and then the whole onion comes right out <laughs> slippery and it burns your layer. What's going on? They got to be like room temp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, nobody does them like DQ. Hey, you know, every Friday, uh, thanks to our friends at Local Environmental Services. Uh, you can check them out online at localenvironmental.ca. We give you a chance to blow off a little steam to get whatever you need off your chest off your chest. Uh, it's a tradition that we call trash time. This one from Wade, who sent me an email earlier this week after my conversation with Alberta Premier Danielle Smith on Tuesday. The Premier released a two and a half minute clip of our interaction. We're talking about trains from downtowns to airports and vice versa in Calgary and Edmonton. Well, Wade saw it. And he says, Jesperson, I deeply respect you as a political bulldozer without partisanship. However, you talk some strong shit about the premier on your podcast, but you're way too soft on her during live interviews. Every Q&A with you and her, you let her dance around answers and deceive you and your followers, and you refuse to press her on such incidents. Put your personal relationship with her aside. Don't be afraid of being blocked on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook by her or her team. I made a mild criticism, nothing extreme. No F, no B, no C was ever used in any commercial that I've ever sent her way. Yet, surprise of surprises, I have been blocked by Danielle Smith on all social media platforms. Show some integrity, Ryan, and be willing to be blocked like the rest of us. With utmost respect... That from Wade. Hey, Wade, I love it. And how about this one from Rod, who says, so Daniel Smith and the UCP want to reduce red tape. Can regulatory oversight be reduced any further when it comes to the Alberta Energy Regulator and the Fort McMurray tailings ponds? Ponds? Talking about a bullshit euphemism. Try toxic industrial fluids and solid waste treatment limbo. It's the lack of regulatory oversight that's seen Fort McMurray tailings fluids and solid waste volumes increase every year for 55 years to over 1.4 trillion liters. 129 square kilometers of toxic fluid tailings closer to 350 square kilometers when the actual earthen berms are included. Rod knows what he's talking about. Says in Quebec, a mine can't even start production until the proponent provides a bond for the full cost of reclamation up front. In Alberta, not only are cleanup bonds woefully inadequate, tailings cleanup measures have never been determined. They don't know how they were going to clean up this fucking mess when they started 55 years ago, and they still don't fucking know. This truly is a situation of tailings limbo, and there's going to be hell to pay if adequate, comprehensive treatment measures are not determined soon. Indeed, it already looks like a bit of hell at Imperial Esso's Curl Lake tailings ponds, where an apparent breach was left unmitigated and unreported for over nine months. We just talked about that with our lead-off guest this morning. Until recent revelations, this truly is a situation of environmental racism, given that most of the folks directly affected downstream by these poisonous leaks are indigenous. For 50 years, the Alberta public has been assured that the best available tech would be used to deal with this problem. Hundreds of millions of dollars in research written off into corporate unicorn dreams to find a magical bullet that clearly does not exist. This has been a bullshit corporate delay tactic to avoid responsibility. Though a magic bullet doesn't exist, there are tried and effective measures. 
desalination plants using public domain technology of distillation could be used to at least treat enough water so that no more water from the Athabasca River needs to be used and the fluid tailings volume can stop increasing and start to reduce. Desalination plants could be powered with solar and wind energy with industrial co-generation. It's time to shit or get off the pot. That from Rod dropping truth bombs across the board. You can be featured on a future Trash Talk by sending us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Proudly presented by our friends at Local Environmental Services. Coming up next week, stories at home, stories abroad, including a live interview from Damascus, Syria. In the meantime, share our content with your friends. Let them know what we're talking about here on Real Talk so they can get up to speed on the stories they need to know about. And thanks for joining us on this show. Make it a safe weekend, and we'll talk to you Monday morning. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook-Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Terry Skelton. Real Talk's Editorial Board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Ann Castleman, Ori Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.